X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Thursday, October 22nd. Friends of The Local, we are hosting a local focus group in the coming weeks. Interested in giving us feedback on the last 150 episodes and giving us input for the next 150 episodes? Send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. You want to join in a local focus group Zoom call in the coming weeks? You can give us feedback on the last 150 episodes and give us an input on the next 150 episodes? Send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. X-Ray. Today, back in the day, novelist, editor, women's rights advocate, Abigail Scott Dunaway was born October 22nd, 1834. The third of 12 children, she grew up in Groveland, Illinois, and then at the age of 17 in 1852, her family left home for a new life in Oregon. We call it Oregon. Abigail's mother, Ann Scott, was worried about her health and objected to the move, but her father, John Scott, loaded the carts up anyway. Let's go! Ann would later die of cholera near Fort Laramie, over 900 miles from home. Maybe she knew she wasn't up for the trip. After an eight-month trek down the Oregon Trail, Abigail's family reached their new home in the Willamette Valley. The next year, she married Benjamin Dunaway, and they settled in Clackamas County. The next 10 years were tough on the Dunaways. They lost both of their farms. In 1862, Ben was injured in a runaway team accident. That doesn't mean a football team, folks. That means a team of horses. This left Abigail, now the mother of five, as the family's main source of income. For five years, she ran a millinery and a nosen shop. But stories of injustice she heard from her female customers lit a spark in her. In 1871, she moved to Portland, where she founded the New Northwest, a weekly newspaper focused on human rights and women's suffrage. Their motto, free speech, free press, free people. Over the next 40 years, she would become a champion in the fight against injustice. Her paper exposed the treatment of Chinese immigrants, discussed the rights of indigenous people, and argued for women's suffrage across the Northwest. Her efforts met a great deal of resistance in Oregon, including from her own brother, Harvey W. Scott. Harvey W. Scott was the editor of The Oregonian, and he actively fought against the right for women to vote. As a result, bills to establish that right failed five times in Oregon, more times than any other state. Harvey eventually passed away in 1910. And in 1912, Oregon became the seventh state to recognize a woman's right to vote. By that time, Washington and the Idaho Territory had already enacted women's suffrage. Those were causes that Abigail also had championed. Oregon Governor Oz West, Oswald West, when you know him like I do, it's Oz, invited Abigail to write and sign the proclamation for equal suffrage. Later, at the age of 77, she became the first woman to register to vote in Multnomah County. She died in 1915 at the age of 80. Is buried in Riverview Cemetery in southwest Portland and didn't live to see the passing of the 19th Amendment. If you visit a grave today, you might see it adorned with stickers that say, I voted. Today we will have your Quick 6 News headlines and we have an interview with Portland City Commissioner Chloe Daly. X-Ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. The Lake Oswego School Board passed two resolutions on Monday to push the governor and superintendent to reopen schools. The resolutions ask the Governor Kate Brown and the Lake Oswego School Superintendent Dr. Laura De La Cruz prioritize a safe return to classrooms. Board members argue that little Clackamas County is above the case rate metrics outlined by Governor Brown for reopening. The district students are disproportionately being impacted by distance learning. In one of the resolutions, board members ask Superintendent Dr. De La Cruz to make immediate plans for K-5 through students return to the classroom. They also ask Dr. De La Cruz to accelerate plans for all other students to return. The resolution penned to Governor Brown passed by 4-1 to one vote. The resolution Dr. De La Cruz passed unanimously. 
Charles Boyle, Deputy Communications Director for Governor Brown, said the Governor's Healthy Schools Reopening Council will meet Wednesday afternoon. A statement from Governor Brown is expected afterwards. Your daily dose of coronavirus data. Two new deaths and 331 new positive cases. That brings our total death count to 635 and total positive cases confirmed 40,443. 331 is kind of a lot. Oregon has laid out an initial plan for COVID-19 vaccine distribution. Nine companies are in the race to find the first COVID-19 vaccine. Of these, three are in stage three trials. That's the last stage before a vaccine can be deemed marketable. And as we move closer to vaccine completion, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, has ordered each state to file a plan on how they will distribute shots to their population. The deadline for this was October 16th. Details are now being released to the public. Oregon's plan stretches over 136 pages. The first section talks about the groups who have been treated unfairly in the past. Focus is made to ensure these groups are not left out. The first phase assumes a limited number of shots available, those who go to health workers, doctors, and nurses. Any shots left over, those will go to essential workers and people in higher-risk categories. Phase two assumes larger dose availability. Shots would then be distributed through a broad network of doctor's offices, clinics, retail pharmacies, public health clinics, and others. Plans not yet final, expected to evolve in the months ahead. Senator Ron Wyden is seeking aid for vineyards hit by wildfire smoke. In a letter sent out Friday, the senator asked the Senate to provide federal assistance to those vineyards that suffered due to those Oregon fires. She requested that any year-end funding bill include an extension of the Wildfires and Hurricanes Indemnity Program. Senator Wyden also asked for five and a quarter million dollars in new funding for research on the effects of smoke exposure to wine grapes. According to the purchasers, smoke-tainted grapes are not acceptable for winemaking. This forces growers to leave their grapes on the vine or sell them at vastly reduced prices. Environmental groups are suing the Department of Homeland Security over Portland tear gas use. Five environmental groups represented by the ACLU of Oregon and others sued the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, on Tuesday. The federal lawsuit alleges the U.S. government violated federal environmental law by deploying tear gas and pepper balls. This violates federal environmental law because these chemical weapons were used without assessing the environmental impacts beforehand, as required by NEPA. We've talked about NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act. BES, Portland's Bureau of Environmental Services, found cyanide and heavy metals such as chromium and zinc at much higher levels in the water near the protest sites. The DEQ, that's Oregon's Department of Environmental Quality, by the way, this segment could also be called Fun with Acronyms, noted that, and I am quoting, the repeated deployment of tear gas in downtown Portland has led to elevated levels of certain contaminants in stormwater drains. On top of that, a large quantity of pepper balls and tear gas projectiles were found in the river and storm runoff system. The lawsuit says, The presence of chemicals, sediment, and munitions debris in the Lamp River waters can cause negative effects to recreationalists as well as wildfire. The lawsuit asks the court to stop the use of tear gas and other munitions. A noose has been found in a park next to Bridal Mile Elementary School. Portland police have launched an investigation into the incident. The noose was found on a fence behind the backstop of a baseball diamond in a park next to elementary school, the Bridal Mile Elementary School in southwest Portland. The police bureau confirmed on Tuesday that biased crime detectives have begun investigating. Officers said they expect the noose was hung Thursday, October 15th. The community and the PTA have organized a rally in response to the hate symbol, and that rally is taking place in Hamilton Park tomorrow, Thursday at 4 p.m. Some good news. Almost 10% of Oregonians have already turned in their ballots. According to the Secretary of State's website, more than 279,000 ballots have been sent back out to more than 2.9 million registered voters. So far in the Portland metro area, Multnomah County has had a 21% voter turnout with more than 115,000 ballots turned in so far. Washington County at 8.5%, Clackamas County currently at 14%. Clark County and Washington, just across the river, 
is reporting more than 16% voter turnout. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray hosts The Local. It's an independent community radio station. It means we can pivot to meet this moment. We're not beholden to shareholders or corporate sponsorship. We can change our content to fit the moment. Whether that means completely turning over the airwaves through the summer to a sister station, the numbers, freeing up airspace to make room for hundreds of free spots for black-owned businesses and Portland nonprofits, creating a new daily local news podcast, this one, The Local. The independence is what makes it special. Please give back to Purpose Driven Media to keep us going for another six years. Please consider making a donation today. In fact, you can stop considering and you could do it. Call 503-233-9729. That's 503-233-9729. Or go to xray.fm and hit the blue donate button. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-ray. Continuing our coverage of the race for Portland City Council position four, we have an interview with incumbent commissioner Chloe U. Daly. How do you get things done on Portland City Council? How long does it really take to make change? How does serving as an elected official transform you? Here's an interview with Commissioner Chloe U. Daly and myself, Emily Gilliland. This just might be her favorite. Chloe Udaly is the incumbent candidate for City Council Position 4. In her time on City Council, she's focused on housing reform, passing legislation that requires landlords to pay relocation fees in the case of no-cause evictions or steep rent hikes. She oversees the Office of Community and Civic Life and the Bureau of Transportation. Prior to her time on City Council, she was a renter's advocate and bookstore owner and a founder of Portland's Independent Publishing Resource Center. This morning, we have Commissioner Chloe Udaly joining us. Good morning, Commissioner. Good morning. Do you have a favorite interview that you've done in the campaign season? <laughs> um, I, I really can't recall offhand. I mean, we're in the, what, month seven of a shutdown where uh, time and <laughs> days and months are it's all um, merging running together and I've done dozens of interviews. Um, no, I'm sorry. Okay. This is going to be it, Commissioner. This is going to yeah, be your favorite this interview. This is my favorite interview. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Fantastic. No pressure. No pressure. How How are you doing, Commissioner? I'm doing okay. You know, um, I have been thinking of this uh experience as being somewhat akin to the seven stages of grief, the shutdown mm. experience, not the election, uh, except we don't know how many stages are or what, or what they are. Mm. So, you know, I've, I've been facing a lot of the same challenges um, that a lot of people are facing. I feel incredibly lucky, however, to have a stable income and a roof over my head and to be in a position to help my community, and I think that is that has um, helped me weather this uh, really mm-hmm. extraordinary, well, multiple challenges we're going through right now. Yeah. With so many things coming at you as a commissioner, and not only COVID-19 and, and supporting this community and its, and its experience of that, with also an eye to recovery and what comes after, and then the the murder of George Floyd and racial justice movement that has uh, that has followed. How do you prioritize your day? You get out of bed, 
<laughs> How do you prior- prioritize what's happening in your day and what you're focused on? Well, I mean, I guess the lucky thing for me and for the community I serve, the city of Portland, is that I have always been focused on people who um, have been historically underrepresented and are the least well-served. And Mm -hmm. those are the people who are struggling and suffering the most right now. So I haven't had to necessarily radically shift my priorities, Mm -hmm. but certainly um, certain things have risen to the top. I mean, um, we are going to be facing a wave of evictions and foreclosures like we have perhaps, well, definitely never seen in our lifetime if we don't take uh, swift action at every level of government. So that's become a huge priority for me. Um, Closing the digital divide at a time where people who were already isolated before the shutdown are almost completely cut off uh, from the outside world. It's really critical that we get them connected so they can... um, access support services and information and have those vital social connections that a lot of us are struggling to maintain. Um, You know, my demands of my job set, uh, determine the course of most of my days, whether it's Mm -hmm. uh, preparing for weekly council meetings or, or overseeing bureaus, but, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's there's definitely more urgency behind some of the ish, ongoing issues we've been facing. Yeah. One of the things that I that I find uh, interesting or a challenge as as being a voter in any election is that you know, this is any interview and election is a job interview to some, in some regards and incumbents um, have an increased challenge because I, I think, you know, you know how to get things done within the context of the role that you're you're applying for, that you're running for. And a competitor might come in with a huge vision and like, I want to do, you know, I heard your um, competitor on the City Club debate said that he's going to solve homelessness in Portland in four years, and he wasn't challenged on that. And so <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was yelling at the screen, stop, ask him how he's going to do that. Um You've yeah. been you've been in the role now. You know you've always brought a big vision for what Portland can be um, through your campaign and and through the way you talk um, during your uh, time in office. What have you learned about how to get things done within the context of the city council and within the city of Portland? Well, I I think one of the biggest things that I've learned is. <clears throat> how much time every process takes Mm -hmm. and how sometimes uh, we are preempted uh, on by passing just common sense uh, legislation by, by state law or sometimes even federal law. And that the issues that we're facing are really complex and um, there is no single solution or silver bullet. And I find that, um, well, in this moment, especially with all the extraordinary stresses and pressures on people, not everyone is terribly interested in learning 
<laughs> the details and hearing about some of the challenges of moving these policies forward. They just want things to change now. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. I I came into office with a sense of urgency, especially around housing. And I think a mandate, considering um, how I won that election. And I still have that sense of urgency. But I also now know um you know, I may have to lobby the legislature to change state law if I want to remove um, traffic enforcement from the police bureau and put it under PBOT. Um, I may have the best intentions with my uh, tenant protection, but if I'm not working with the most impacted communities, which are typically going to be black, indigenous, and people of color, my policies could have unintended negative consequences for those communities. So it's incredibly important to, you know, take a really deep dive, do uh, broad community engagement, and be willing to incorporate that feedback into your policy. I mean, that's why I passed RELO in the first 30 days I was in office. Mm. That was a solid, effective, legally defensible defensible policy. We, we got really lucky that we could pull something off that big in 30 days. It took me over two years to pass my next major tenant protection package, which was fair access and renting. And that's because of some of these complexities and challenges that I mentioned and our commitment to doing, doing the work with community and delivering a policy that will actually have positive outcomes for the most impacted communities. Yeah. You all are now embarking on the fall budget monitoring process right now. What are your goals for this budgeting session? Uh, My goals are, uh, you know, similar to what what they always are, but with a little more uh, intense focus on um, keeping people housed. So I'm going to be advocating for uh, universal eviction defense to help uh, the, you know, hundreds, possibly thousands of people who will be facing eviction next year, as well as rent assistance. Um, I've been very engaged in the conversations around re-envisioning our approach to public safety and policing um, and and investing in community, which is uh, a really critical part of this whole conversation. Uh, so I'll be pursuing um, some items and investments uh, related to, to those conversations. Um, and continuing to do everything I can to support our small business community. It's been devastating to watch just among my own circle of of friends, um, how many people have had to permanently close their businesses, how many jobs we've lost, and what that means to the, you know, the fabric of our communities. I mean, Mm -hmm. our small businesses provide over 50% of the jobs in Portland. And they're also a huge part of what makes Portland so special and such a big draw um, to people from around the country and the world. Um, so 
those are, you know, those are just a few <laughs> of my just a few of my uh, priorities right now. A lot of folks have their eye on policing and police reform, and you mentioned that in in the budget priorities. Lots of uh, lots of drama, my word, about how the budget was passed with uh, a, re- a reduction in the last round. What's your priority for uh, the police budget in this next round? Well, I want to commend my colleagues for the cuts, historic cuts that they made to the police bureau um, in the 2021 budget. I supported all of the cuts. Uh, I don't think we need to rehash the details of that vote. Mm -hmm. Um, And I still feel good about those cuts. Moving forward, because I do think we eliminated, you know, a lot of those, well, we, we eliminated some problematic, uh, specialty units. We cut 15 million more dollars on top of the 12 that, um, had already been approved. Uh, now the cuts are getting, will have to be more precise. And they'll also have to come along or they have to be done while we simultaneously create new systems and structures to take on the work that we've left to the police. Mm -hmm. So this isn't the process we're going through is not taking away position authority and funding from the police and expecting them to do the same amount of work with less resources, it's really a conversation about what do we need armed police officers to do for us in our community Mm. and what have they been doing, uh, what issues have they been responding to um, that would be more appropriately handled by other entities. We have to have those systems in place though. Mm. So for instance, I wouldn't, although I would like to see traffic enforcement move out of the police bureau, I wouldn't support cutting that team until we're ready to stand up a new um, model of enforcement. We obviously don't want a lapse uh, of enforcement in the city. We already have um, very small enforcement division, and we know that there are a lot of um, reckless drivers endangering uh, people's lives on our streets. Um, But there are ways that we can make our streets safer and deal with a lot of the more kind of minor moving violations that we see discourage speeding and red light running without using police officers. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, You've been under an intense amount of pressure in your in your term as a city councilor. How has that changed you? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I uh, 
I'm pretty much constitutionally incapable of being of not being myself. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. For better, for worse, you know, the most common uh, things I hear, like feedback I hear is, you're a real person. And I just think, you know, like that's an extraordinary thing to find in politics. And I just think, wow, that is an incredibly low bar, but thank you. (laughs) Um, I'm the same person in every room. Uh, That's another one. Um, You know, whether you agree with my policies or not, um, no one can accuse me of being, you know, dishonest or insincere. I, um, I mean, it's a stressful job. The, the hardest part for me has just been being in the spotlight and being under what feels like constant scrutiny and sometimes mm-hmm. attack. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've, you know, I think I have acclimated to it. I, I didn't have an easy life uh, to begin with. And I'm I'm used to struggle. Um, I'm trying to think of ways that's changed me. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we're both women. I you probably share my experience of having to be hyper aware of um, how you look and how you act and how you're moving through the world and whether you're safe and whether you're being judged, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a more intense version Mm of, of that, I'd say. Um, Maybe, maybe, I feel like the older I get, uh, the more I just know on a really fundamental level that we are all more alike than different Mm -hmm. and that although uh, we don't always agree on on how to achieve our goals and how to strive towards our shared uh, values that I do think that Portland is a progressive city with amazing potential so believe it or not I think I am actually less cynical about <laughs> the future. Really? Than I was before I was elected. There, I found something. Wow. We yeah. get to talk about that because I think, you know, the from afar, from a, you know, a, a voter perspective, there's, there's sometimes, well, of course, there's multiple flavors of candidates, but there's those who might be advocating for more incremental change, there are those who um, are making bolder, bolder moves. I would put you in the bolder move category, which puts you puts you out there for more criticism. And yeah. um, and so watching you do that with the with the amount of um, feedback, oftentimes negative, at least in the media, has has been painful because it as someone who cares about this community and about civic engagement, like it doesn't make me want to be a politician. I'm actually like, heck no, I would, why would I put myself through that? So to hear you say, you know, it's not changed me. I've been, you know, a, a fighter, I've been advocating for a long time and yet I'm less cynical about creating change is, is groundbreaking to me. 
what has made you less less cynical? Well, I mean, I call election night, November 2016, the best and worst night of my life. <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting myself into just running for city council. Mm. This was not what I intended to do with my life. I was really happy as a bookseller and a publisher. And um, as my rent went up and up and up, I, I really began to struggle to survive and keep a roof over my family's head. Mm-hmm. And I saw so many other Portlanders going through the same struggle and oftentimes um, much worse off than I was. And it, it really felt like a calling for my community. Mm. Um, I, there's lots of other things I want to do with my life or I could do. And so I really, there, I really have never, nothing I've done has been with an eye to whether or not it will help or hurt my reelection. I just haven't allowed myself. Well, it just doesn't naturally occur to me. I do things because I think they're the right things to do. I do Mm -hmm. things because I hear demands from my community um, or calls for help. I don't do them because I think they're going to earn me brownie points and I don't not do them because I'm afraid of how it will impact my career. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the cynicism, I mean, my life is easier in some ways than it used to be. It's certainly easier to have a stable paycheck um, and to not worry a single minute about whether or not I'll be able to pay my rent. Mm-hmm. So that has lifted an extraordinary burden off of me. Um, two, I know I know the inner workings of City Hall now and to a, um, some degree the legislature and our you know our federal government. And um, I look at each challenge, you know, knowing that I probably can't get to my ultimate destination in one move, but each move I make, if I'm moving forward or I'm moving in the direction of good, which is how I usually describe it, that's that's a small victory. Hmm. I'm not someone who's terribly satisfied with incremental change. I mean, look at the mess that we're in <laughs> right now. Yeah. Um, if anyone had any doubts about how poorly this country was doing, I think COVID has really uh, lifted the veil and all of our systemic failures are on full display. And I think more people than ever realize we can't continue down this path. We can't have half of our um, community members living at or near the poverty level. We can't have thousands of people experiencing homelessness. Uh, We can't have people without access to affordable quality health care. And 
we have a few years to radically change the way that we live and do business to avert climate catastrophe. Um, the list goes on and on. So, uh, yeah, I think just ha- having having the resources, having so much of my time and energy freed up from the daily grind of being low income and uh, being a renter in the middle of a historic uh, um, rent crisis. I'm still a renter, uh, but uh, and then having tools and resources to do good work and help people is just it has made me a much more a much more hopeful person. I love that. I love that. One final question. I do too, because if it if I didn't feel that way, <laughs> I wouldn't be in very good shape right now. Yeah. No, um, that would be hard. <laughs> yeah. There is one more question. There is a scenario where you could be the most tenured person on city council at this election, at through this election, after this election. Are you ready for that? Yeah, I mean Regardless of the outcome of the mural race, I will be the senior um, Mm -hmm. commissioner, which is funny to think because I've always been the youngest commissioner, but I've got a fellow Gen Xer finally joining (laughs) city council, (laughs) uh, Commissioner-elect Rubio, so uh, that'll be fun. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, you know, there's a steep learning curve. There was not much of an onboarding process you really face a sink or swim situation when you take that seat I have an amazing team I mean that's something that I haven't uh, touched on in that in this interview but always try to emphasize um, I've been able to do what I've done because of my incredible team at City Hall and because of all the amazing community advocates and activists uh, who support and contribute to our work. Um, so I, I will say um, Commissioner Fritz is definitely the expert on parliamentary procedure <laughs> or Robert's rules, which is what we how we conduct city council. So I'm going to miss her (laughs) patient guidance as the rest of us fumble around sometimes with procedure and also the institutional knowledge and just the history that she has on so many of the issues that, that come to city council, especially around planning and some of the uh, land use cases that that we hear, um, I'm I am going I am definitely going to miss that. And, and similarly, you know, I really miss our colleague Commissioner Fish, who I like to call the middle child of city council. Um, <laughs> peacemaker, who was this, huh? The peacemaker. Yeah. The. The mediator um, of council really always um, able to pull back from some of the more kind of intense conversations or disagreements we've gotten into and help us uh, find a path forward together. So, you know, I'm 
I've learned lessons from all of my colleagues and uh, I'm sure that, you know, every new person that comes on, the dynamics slightly change and I'm, I'm confident that we'll all find our, find our places. And I'm really excited. Uh, next year, we are going to have the most diverse and the most progressive city council that we've ever had. Uh, I'm thrilled to, to be sitting uh, alongside these colleagues and um, really excited about the work that, that we're going to be able to do together. Oh, thank you for that. Commissioner Udaly, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. Thanks. This was really fun. Nice way to start my day. Oh, good. I'm so glad and to hear that. If uh, anyone's interested in finding out more, my website is votefully.com. Excellent. Thank you for listening to Local Your Hometown in about 30 minutes. If you care about making sure that media is independent, community-driven, empowered, and place where neighborhood local artists, activists, and creatives are empowered in a sea of corporate-driven media powered by interests of what will make the most money and get the most clicks, become a member and help us meet this moment at a tipping point. Again, that number, 503-233-9729, 503-233-X-Ray. And again, that number, 503-233-X-Ray. And by that, I mean 503-233-9729. If you prefer the interwebs, go to xray.fm and click the blue donate button. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.